Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome to the 51st episode of District of Conservation. This is your host, Gabriella Hoffman media strategist, award-winning outdoor writer, and doer of many things out there. I hope you guys had a wonderful National Hunting and Fishing Day or Public Lands Day, wherever you may be listening from throughout this great nation. I want to say thank you to the four individuals who left really nice reviews on Apple Podcasts. I'm very grateful that you guys did. You don't know how much I appreciate it of anything that I ask. That's the only thing that I ask of you. I'm not one to ask people of many things. I hate asking people for things, but if you want to help me out in some way, reviews go a long way, regardless of what podcasting platform you use. So if you can send some reviews our way through Apple Podcasts or whatever supporting podcast platform you listen to, we'd be very appreciative of that. Our guest for today is Mark Oliva of the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Mark serves as their director of public affairs, so he does communications, and he works with members of the press and other outlets and activists to really have a cohesive message and obviously represent the interests of the 10,000 or so members who belong to the National Shooting Sports Foundation, or NSSF. Mark has also spent many years working in the United States Marine Corps. He did a lot of public relations work there as well. He was a congressional fellow for Veterans Affairs. He is an avid hunter, husband, father, and soon-to-be grandpa. Mark and I talked about a lot of issues. We talked about what potentially people should be worried about in Congress, either in the House of Representatives or United States Senate, what should people keep on the lookout for in state legislatures, what the NSSF does, what's kind of in the future for firearms enthusiasts and owners and people who work in the sector because it's a huge multi-billion dollar industry for those of you guys who didn't know we talked about how excise taxes collected on sporting goods such as firearms hunting gear licenses etc goes back to conservation efforts as well that's a component people do not like to discuss or fail to discuss often. So we covered a lot of ground in this episode, and I think you're going to find Mark's perspective very interesting. Without further ado, here's my interview with Mark Oliva of the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Thank you, Mark, so much for coming on District of Conservation. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk with you. Absolutely. And we're sitting, for those of you listening, we're recording this in the National Shooting Sports Foundation's D.C. office, which is really cool. It's stacked with taxidermy really cool things and you don't feel like you're in Washington DC so it's a nice place to come to. It is a little sportsman's <laughs> haven that we've got here uh, in the shadow of the Senate so we, we really like it here. That is wonderful. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background, what you do with the National Shooting Sports Foundation and what the organization does? Yeah. So I am the uh, public affairs director for the National Shooting Sports Foundation. I um, 
I basically describe it to people as I get to deal with most of the media that doesn't really like us a whole lot. So I get to deal with a lot of the contentious issues. I work in support of our, our government relations teams, both at the federal and the state level. So all the things I deal with are, are very much policy related. Um, I came to the National Shooting Sports Foundation after a 25-year career in the Marine Corps. Uh, I did public affairs in the Marine Corps uh, up through up until the last couple of years. Uh, I actually did a, a year as a defense fellow on Capitol Hill, worked for a member of Congress, uh, was able to uh, work some legislative issues. I actually got a, a bill signed into law uh, while I was there that I drafted up. And, uh, and then the opportunity arose there. I was able to come over here. And, uh, and be able to take the skill set into another passion, which I have working in the firearms industry. So That's how you got connected in That's the grand scheme of things. That's how I got connected, yeah. It was a you know, very opportunistic uh, uh, move of mine, I guess you could say, but I, I really do feel blessed. And I, you know, I enjoy the people I work with and, and what we're working for. So, Yeah, we got connected maybe a year and a half ago or so, and you've been so helpful. I will say, like anyone writing about firearms or has questions, you're a great resource. So I, anyone listening and they have questions, they, ha- they should talk to you I for had sure. an old boss who used to work for an Marine Corps. He used to never carry business cards with him. I used really? to yell at him all the time, be like, Jay, where's your business cards? And he told me, he said, no, nah, I'm not going to pass those out. Those are work coupons. <laughs> He's a little right. So, mm. No, the work that you've done, I, w- I would say communications efforts. You've certainly reached out to more bloggers like me and writers, and I think you guys – um, much like some other components of the industry, want reporters and media figures to know. So you've, I think you've done a good job of showcasing what the NSSF does really well. No, I appreciate that. I think it's important that we, we have open dialogue and we, we talk it about is. what we're doing, why we're doing it, and, and make sure that we you know invest other people into what we believe in. So. Mm-hmm. Could you dis- make the distinction? Because I think so many people, we see this in the media. You and I have talked about this offline <laughs> yeah. many, many times about how the media obfuscates. I mean, for one, they always paint anyone who's involved in the firearms industry as complicit in mass shootings. Uh, there's no positive culture whatsoever. Th- everything is criminal. Everything is bad. And they especially go after the firearms manufacturers who they think are the National Rifle Association or Gun Owners of America or whichever other entity or Second Amendment Foundation. And can you also explain how vilifying the manufacturers is very much against a lot of their business practices as well? Yeah, so I I think the easiest way to kind of describe the difference between the National Shooting Sports Foundation and some of the other organizations like uh, NRA or GOA or, or National Association of Gun Rights, Second Amendment Foundation, um, we are a trade association. Just like there are trade associations for car makers, there's a trade association for uh, firearms and ammo makers. So we do everything that we can to make sure that those firearms manufacturers and ammo makers can bring their product to market and be able to sell their product in, in a legal way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so everything from making sure that they can get the bar stock to be able to make the barrels, to turn those barrels, to be able to pursue, produce a finished firearm, get that firearm to the distributor, distributor to the retailer, and retailer into your hands as a, cons- as a customer, we're all behind that. We do everything that happens behind that gun counter. So everything that happens to get that gun to you is kind of where our wheelhouse is. Once it crosses that gun counter, that's where the other groups, the NRAs, this, the, the Second Amendment Foundation, the other groups, that's where they kind of pick up and take care of you as the, as the advocate for your rights. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not a Second Amendment organization. However, we couldn't exist without the Second Amendment. Right. Um, we have some interests on the other side of that counter. We want to make sure that you're still able to get out and hunt and shoot. Mm-hmm. We want you to be an active participant in the sport. We want you to be able to pass that along to, to your family, your friends, uh, to get them excited about the, the shooting sports. 
Um, but pretty much everything we do runs right up to that the gun counter line. Once it crosses that gun counter, that, that kind of lever tips over and, and it kind of becomes the bailiwick of, uh, of the other organizations. So I think it's important people understand. The NRA is a civil rights Second Amendment organization. NSSF is a trade association. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, and oftentimes, especially in wake of recent mass shootings, I think the first effort that they wanted to penalize uh, manufacturers was after Sandy Hook, and they're trying to do that now. And I think there was that court case I think it was um, the district court, and I, th- I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the Court of Appeals will be hearing an appeal against the case relating to Remington, and, and they so said... Bushmaster. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, I think there's a lo- there's obviously a law in Congress that prevents manufacturers from being liable when people misuse their products. Yeah. Protection and, for lawful... Yeah. Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and the manufacturers are often vilified. And I, given my several years foray into the industry, having gone to the SHOT Show, which is what your organization also sponsors as well. I see nothing but safe handling and practices. Uh, it seems that the manufacturers are very keen on promoting true gun safety. They don't want people to misuse their products. And I think if this uh, lawsuit were to go into effect, it would obviously, uh, under the guise of, uh, well, they're marketing it for killing people. And, and that's obviously contrary to what <laughs> what they sell the, the firearms for. It's for home defense, for hunting, for certain types of firearms. Uh, but what is your sense of the manufacturers and how they feel? Um, are the characterizations of them accurate, inaccurate? What, what are your thoughts? Are they involved in the process as well to ensure that their products are used safely? Yeah, I mean, so our member companies, and the, the National Shooting Sports Foundation is made up of roughly 10,000 members. Those are your big manufacturers, your, your Colt, your Remingtons, your Sig Sauers, mm-hmm. uh, all the way down to your mom-and-pop retailers and ranges, uh, and, and some outdoor riders are members of the National Shooting Sports Foundation. So we represent their interests. Um, so everybody who's a member contributes to these programs that we have. We've actually organized it under one big umbrella now called Real Solutions Safer Communities. We have a website, nssfrealsolutions.org, and we talk about these initiatives that we do as an industry. And every one of these makers, every one of these distributors, retails, ranges that participates in our program, they're a stakeholder in this. And, and of those, you know, probably the one we've had going the longest and we're very proud of is our Project Child Safe program. Mm-hmm. Our Project Child Safe program is our partnership with 15,000 law enforcement agencies in all 50 states and the U.S. territories. We passed out 38 million gun locks with our safety kits free of charge. That's in addition to every gun lock that is also provided from the manufacturer at retail. So when you're buying your, your gun at retail, your new firearm has a gun lock in there. For some reason, if you lose that gun lock, we'll be able to get you another one. In those two programs combined, we've had 100 million gun locks passed out free because we want to make sure that when you're not using your firearm, when that's not in use, it's properly stored so it's inaccessible to those people who should never have their hands on it. Whether that be a child, whether it be someone who can't be trusted with a firearm, a prohibited individual, a thief, we want to make sure that that gun stays out of the hands of those who should never have it. Aside from that, we also have our Don't Lie for the Other Guy campaign. We work with the ATF very closely to make sure we under, that we bring awareness out to the, to the issue of straw purchasing firearms. So, Gab, if you and I walk into a store and I say, I want this gun, but I don't want my name associated with that gun, or I'm a prohibited person and can't buy that gun for myself, and I convince you to buy that gun for me, mm-hmm. you have just committed a felony. Right. It's a straw purchase. Yep. If you answer on that form 4473 that you're the true recipient of that firearm and you're not... That's a 10, year, 10 years in jail and $250,000 fine punishment that comes down the road. 
We take this campaign to two cities every year at the ATF's choosing to make sure that people are aware of it. In addition to that, with the ATF, we work to make sure our retailers understand what the signs are to be able to spot what could possibly be a straw purchase and stop it in its tracks before it ever happens. We want to make sure that these guns don't end up in the hands of the people who should never have them. We're doing what we can to make sure that's part of that. The other part of that Don't Lie program is we also work with the ATF to make sure that should a firearm be stolen, I take that back. It's part of our Operation Secure Store program. Operation Secure Store program with the ATF, we work to make sure that we are uh, letting our retailers know ways that they can improve their safety and security at their stores. We know that there's been a growth in the uh, in the smash and grabs that have been happening, these, mm-hmm. these thefts and robberies of these, uh, mm-hmm. these firearms retailers. And we know when people are stealing these guns, they're not stealing them so they can feed their family. They're stealing, they're stealing them so they can do something terrible in your mm-hmm. community. We want to make sure we're doing everything we can to stop this. We're working to make sure we educate our retailers on how they can harden their stores, make it a little bit more difficult target for theft and robbery. The other side of that operation, secure stores, we're also a matching reward offers for when guns do get stolen, and the ATF puts out a reward for the for the prosecution of, of an individual accused of these crimes. We're going to match our reward to help incentivize people to get these folks behind bars mm-hmm. and get those guns off the street. We want to make sure we're doing our part to bring those in. That's a check my boss is happy to write every month if he has to. <laughs> so part of our initiatives as well, Fix Nicks. We're very proud of our Fix Nicks program. It's, a, it's an issue that we continue to work on. Believe it or not, there are still states in, in the United States who are not fully submitting and fully uh, participating in the submission of Background um, checks? Of, not just, but it's the adjudicated mental health background uh, yes, checks. Yes, yes, yes. So if a judge tells a person you are, you need to go to a mental health facility, you don't have a choice in the matter anymore, mm-hmm. you have now become a prohibited individual, mm-hmm. that adjudicated mental health decision should be fed up to the FBI. So we know, right. our retailers know when they run a background check, you should never have a, you should never have a gun. Mm-hmm. There are still states who aren't completely participating in this program. It's 2013, we started to tackle this issue. We've changed the law in 16 states and at the federal level. Senator Cornyn got on this bill. He knew it was an issue. He wanted to get get it fixed because what we found is after the Sullivan Springs murders mm-hmm. was that the, the murderer there had been dishonorably discharged from the yep. Air Force, had been convicted of domestic violence, mm-hmm. and had been involuntarily committed to a mental health facility. So on three separate occasions, he should have never been allowed to Absolutely. buy a gun again. Mm-hmm. DOD never submitted his records into the system. And he was able to buy firearms on five separate occasions. Crazy. So, again, we saw a failure of the system. We mm-hmm. saw a failure of the government to comply with their own law. So this law that Senator Cornyn wrote, who also had probably your most pro-Second Amendment uh, senator in the, in the Senate, as well as probably your most anti-Second Amendment senator, Senator Murphy out of Connecticut, was the lead co-sponsor. We had 78 co-sponsors on this bill. You couldn't get 78 senators to sign a birthday card. <laughs> but they all got onto this bill because this is what common ground looks like. This is what bipartisan answers look like. Yeah. We can agree that people who can't be trusted to have guns should never have guns. Right. So let's make the background check system work as intended. Yeah. Let's fix it. And that's what we're continuing to work on. We're very proud to say, we actually just put out a release yesterday, very proud to say that since 2013, submission of background, submission, submission of adjudicated mental health uh, records to the NICS background check system has increased 241%. We went from 1.7 million records in 2013 to over 5.7 million records, 5.6 million records today. We're very proud of that. We still have a lot of work to do. We're continuing to press on this to get those few remaining states to fully comply with doing that. I think probably the last part of our of our other one is is really kind of the tough one for a lot of people is is suicide prevention. So mm-hmm. we've partnered with the largest suicide 
uh, awareness and prevention uh, organization in America. They recognized that they couldn't reach gun retailers with any, or, or gun owners without any mm -hmm. sense of credibility unless they worked alongside folks like us. We recognized that we didn't have all the tools and resources mm -hmm. that we need to be able to provide the necessary tools to, to gun owners. So through that partnership between uh, the largest suicide organization and, and us, we've now provided resources to, uh, to ranges and retailers to, for people to be able to be aware of the signs, some of the some of the the telltale you know tips of when someone might be having an issue, mm -hmm. and know when and how to be able to reach out and have that point of intervention before mm -hmm. there's a crisis. Mm -hmm. We recognize that most suicides, I think it's upwards of 66 percent of suicides, mm -hmm. are committed with a firearm. We know that there's something more can be done. We're going to continue to work to drive that number down to zero. These are our responsible solutions initiatives. These things make our communities safer. We believe in those things. Every manufacturer, every retailer, every range that's out there that's a member of the National Shooting Sports Foundation has ownership in these programs. Mm -hmm. We're very proud of them. We continue to work to educate Congress on them. We're working to educate the public on what we're doing. And it's a huge part of what we are as the industry. We know what works. We have, a, we have an answer. And it doesn't mean that we have to infringe on people's rights to get it done. Absolutely. Those are very good points because the casual observer would have no idea unless they go to a SHOT show or they talk to various manufacturers or people on, with boots on the ground to do that. And I've had the luxury of learning and, and studying all that, but I encourage anyone listening to do that too because it is there's so many initiatives that you sounded off on that actually do so much to obviously promote true gun safety mitigate suicide and just so much more and they think well they just sell guns or they encourage firearm ownership and they don't do anything else that that's completely wrong and i, I appreciate you clarifying no, exactly what thanks it, it really is something we want to make sure that people are aware of i mean it is you know we we know what works we, yep. we've seen it we, mm -hmm. we we've had these these solutions work at the small level we just need to bring them out there we instead of people villainizing us some of our lawmakers trying to you know beat us beat us over the head about an issue that they just really aren't it's always sometimes interested no. in the answer. They're just more interested in the issue. We, we want the answer. We know it works. Yeah, because they often, with any gun control legislation, they commonly just, how do, how do you remove firearms from the equation? There's yeah. nothing beyond that. And that's not a serious way to address yeah. an actual issue like this. So it's, it's good that obviously the industry does take these very seriously. Something more concerning is we've all heard about this. You see it on Twitter, et cetera all the crazy gun legislation that has been proposed. I think there may be a stalemate on it just because other issues have somewhat jumped into the news cycle and give, have been given more precedent. But what is currently on NSSF's radar uh, with relation to firearms and maybe even hunting legislation? Because you guys also uh, tackle that issue as well. But what can people be aware of? Um, should they expect anything to be considered federally or in state houses? What are you guys focusing on yeah, right now? Yeah, sometimes it's hard to believe that anything actually gets done on Capitol Hill, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, but again, I think when you look, uh, you know, the the proof of fixed next moving was was a huge success for us, and we're very proud of that. Um, most recently, too, is we were able to celebrate the the signing of the Target Practice and Marksmanship Training mm -hmm. Support Act, what we call the Range Bill, and that basically it reformulated the the payout that. Uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service got from the Pittman-Robertson dollars. So every time a firearms maker makes a gun or the ammunition maker makes a bullet or mm -hmm. makes a shot shell, they're paying an excise tax on mm -hmm. that. And that money goes straight into the conservation fund, the Pittman-Robertson uh, fund. Mm -hmm. That money gets apportioned back out to the states on a very complicated formula. Mm -hmm. But part of that was also so people, so the states could use that money to build public ranges mm -hmm. so people have a place to go shoot. What we understood is that people want to go shoot. They just couldn't always find a place to shoot. Mm -hmm. And some of the places that they could shoot, 
weren't always kept up to spec. So we wanted to do something we could to make that a little bit easier. So previous to this law, states had to come up with a 25% match to be able to start a project. So let's just use nice big round numbers because I'm a communications major. Mm-hmm. So say you were going to build a range that was going to cost a million dollars. That would mean a state would have to come up with $250,000 down payment to be able to start that project to access the other $750,000 from the Pittman-Robertson Fund. Mm-hmm. They would also have three years to execute that, those funds. If, that, if those funds weren't executed, they would be returned to the government, but they wouldn't be returned to the Pittman-Robertson Fund. It would be returned to the general treasury. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't stay in that conservation lockbox. So the way it works now with this new law signed in it's a 10% down. So to do that million-dollar project, now the states only have to come up with $100,000, and they also have five years now to be able to execute those funds. That's right. That gives them a little bit more time, and there's also some protections in there from some of the frivolous lawsuits we know would come with this, mm-hmm. some of the environmental impact studies, some of the other stuff that come along with that. So it gives them a little more time to get through that process and also protects them from some of those uh, roadblocks that people would throw up mm-hmm. to try and prevent these mm-hmm. these happening. We want people to get out and shoot. Whether it's going to be at a private range or a public range, we want you to be able to get out to shoot somewhere that's going to be safe, it's going to be fun, you're going to be able to teach somebody else how to do that safe and make that fun. Mm-hmm. And this is important also when it comes to hunter education. A lot of our hunter education courses happen at these public ranges because they want to make sure the, the, the game wardens, the fish and wildlife officers, want to make sure that you're able to handle that firearm safely to be able to certify you. So we want to make sure that we have a good, safe place to shoot. Mm-hmm. On the radar now, very tough right now. Obviously, the president talked about wanting to do something on gun control legislation. We saw some proposals uh, that the president said weren't necessarily his proposals. Mm-hmm. Uh, our folks have been and working with the White House, have been working with Congress on what some of those proposals would be. Obviously, some of them, we're going to be adamantly opposed to them. Uh, others, you know, we're going to give those consideration. But we have yet to see a proposal come forward that is got any teeth to it. Mm-hmm. So, And I think right now with some of the politics on the Hill, I think it really is grinding a lot of this to the halt. I think that when it comes to things that we want to do to help improve the background check system, mm-hmm. it's unfortunate. It's a, it's a lost opportunity. Um, and I think that for, for some of the other side, they're so dug in on, on, the, on the projects that they want. I have to have a universal background check or nothing goes. Yeah. That's been the position of Senator Murphy, Senator Blumenthal uh, in, in the Senate. Um, Universal background check sounds great on on a talking point, but when you start to get into the details of what HR8 is, it becomes very problematic. Mm -hmm. Some of those issues that we have with HR8, uh, it comes down to the details. So right now, if you're an FFL, a federal firearms licensee, and you are going to do a transfer of a firearm, you have to do what they call it. You have to keep an A&D logbook, an acquisitions and dispositions logbook. That means every gun that comes into your store, you have to log it in as acquired. Mm-hmm. And every time you transfer it out of your store to someone who bought it, you put it as disposed. It goes in, goes out. That, that has to happen every time. HRA, to do the universal background check on a person-to-person sale rather than a retail sale, would mean that they, the, the instructions according to the law would say, don't put it into the A&D, do the background check first and then put it in. Well, that's in contravention to ATF regulations. So now you'll be asking an FFL to risk their license to be able to comply with the law. Mm-hmm. So that becomes a serious issue when we're trying to protect our, our, our retail members. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition, there are issues when it comes to uh, liability concerns. If I do a trigger job on, on a handgun because I love having a half-pound trigger, even though it scares the snot out of everybody <laughs> else, and I decide I want to transfer that gun to you, we go in to do a background check, and I transfer you a, a handgun that is now out of warranty because I put a half-pound trigger on it, mm-hmm. 
and you get that and somehow you have a negligent discharge, it wasn't the retailer that did it. They're not responsible. So there's liability concerns because they transferred that firearm to you and, and they never really actually had possession of that mm-hmm. firearm. There's also the issue of what we call double denial. So you and I, Gabby, we walk in, I want to sell you a gun that I've had. You and I have known each other for years, and I want to be able to sell this, this beautiful handgun that I've had. Mm-hmm. So we walk in, they run a background check on you, and they find out you're prohibited. You've got something in your background that you can't have a gun. <laughs> and so that retailer wants to give that handgun back to me so he can get out of the store because it's never his handgun to begin with. Mm-hmm. And he runs a background check on me, and he finds out I'm prohibited. Well, now what's he supposed to do? That FFL is not a law enforcement agency. He doesn't have the right to seize property, but he can't exactly transfer that property to two prohibited individuals that are standing in his store demanding a gun. These answers are not in there. And that's when we say the devil in the details on the universal background checks. Sounds great in a talking point, but when you start to look at how it's actually put into the practice, there's some serious issues. Yeah, and and beside the technical stuff, I know it would disproportionately hurt people in lower income brackets and your kind of untraditional gun owners, the people who would need firearms the most, it would, they would be priced out of the market. They wouldn't be able to uh, go through the background check. It'll be very costly to obtain it. We would see stuff, I think, like in New Jersey, where you have to wait so long just even to get a permit to purchase a gun or something of that nature. So it'll be very draconian from what a lot of people in the industry have said yep. as well. The retailers have some concerns. There are some retailers who see this possibly as a positive. It could drive business into their stores. Uh, there are some retailers who see it as, as an issue, especially if they're capped on how much they can charge for mm-hmm. a transfer. I mean, if, if they're going to be able to sell a gun at retail or transfer a gun where they're not going to make any money on that gun, but now it's going to take up their time to conduct that transfer, how are we going to compensate them for that time? So there, there are some unanswered questions that we're still looking into. But again, it's at its start. I mean, the Universal Background Check Bill, HRA, is just a non-starter. Mm-hmm. How does NSSF feel about obviously without weighing into presidential politics, but there are several people running for office. And we've seen politicians propose this all the time, uh, legislation they want, I mean, and it's kind of a more prevailing culture where corporations are now wading into gun control and they're t- adopting these positions. And unfortunately they are within their right to do it as if they are private sure. companies. But not only would the corporate culture, I feel, shift, the, uh, shift into this and, and embrace this more, I feel like when they're not satisfied simply with just the corporate uh, conglomerate organizations and, and companies banning stuff or restricting stuff or ultimately getting rid of firearms from the marketplace in their stores altogether, politicians are going to shift their focus onto mom and pop shops. We had one presidential candidate basically say we should penalize credit card companies for engaging in business yeah. in commerce with, with firearms manufacturers or even just mom and pop shops. So how does NSSF feel about that and, and what could be done potentially to, to stop that? Yeah, so we call that corporate policy virtue signaling. Yeah. So they like to wave a nice big flag from the top of their hill or their, or their Wall Street high rise and tell everyone how how holy they are, you know, up in their boardroom. So the issues that we have with this is the people who enact policy in our country are elected officials. We all have a say in who represents us. They are accountable to us as voters. Mm -hmm. That boardroom, that CEO, is not accountable to you or I. And so we have a serious issue when we have unelected faceless individuals who are representing corporations rather than individual voters uh, dictating public policy in the United States. Again, if they choose not to sell firearms, that's their decision. And we respect the, the individual decisions that companies make to be able to, they're going to be in the best interest of their business. Um, when businesses start to 
go after the firearms industry, we start to have serious concerns about this. And we've seen this with the banks. Mm-hmm. We've seen this with um, with uh, Citibank, with Citibank, Citibank. With Bank of America, are probably mm-hmm. your two biggest right now. Uh, and that is why the National Shooting Sports Foundation has worked very closely with Senator Kramer and Senator Kennedy, as well as Congressman Williams out of Texas, for the uh, Freedom Financing Act. So the Freedom Financing Act would tell these big banks that have assets of over $10 million that if they take part in discriminatory practices against industries like ours, like the firearms industry, that are lawful, that are regulated, that are are doing business every day and, and no issues, but they just don't happen to like us. If they discriminate against businesses like us, that they would lose their FDIC or their, their taxpayer-funded insurance protections. So, again, let's think about this. You and I pay, both pay taxes, and those taxes insure those private banks to stay in business. And while we could argue whether or not that is a good thing, it's a law. We also spend a lot of money in our tax dollars to bail those businesses out when they had trouble a few years back. So now those same businesses are telling us the National Shooting Sports Foundation and our member companies, who all pay taxes, right. that our business is no good and we should be run out of business. So we have a serious issue when we're the ones who've been paying in to protect your business, to keep it alive, and now you're going to unfairly push us to the sidelines. So that's why we're working with uh, Senator Craner, Senator Kennedy, and, uh, and Congressman Williams to get the Freedom Financing Act pushed into law. We believe that's the right way to go. Interestingly, this week as well, there was a piece of legislation called the Safe Banking Act that was passed out of the House, and it had an amendment by uh, Congressman Luchtemeyer. And the Congressman Luchtemeyer, of course, has been a huge champion on trying to kill Operation Choke Point. Believe it or not, Operation Choke Point is still legal. Mm-hmm. You could still do it. There's nothing telling the government that you can't use the levers of government to pressure financial institutions to, to discriminate against the firearms industry or other industries mm-hmm. that may fall out of political favor. That amendment passed out of the House this week. So it is now headed over to the Senate, and maybe, finally, we get this passed through the Senate, we can have a final end to Operation Choke Point. So huge thanks to Congressman Luchtemeyer. We have been working with him very long. We've recognized him in the past for his efforts in being a champion of the firearms industry, and we couldn't be more appreciative of that. It's, it's time to bring this blatantly illegal action by the Obama right. administration to an end. Yeah. It's, yeah, it seems like there's a lot going on, and it's so hard Always. to keep track of everything. It <laughs> it's really tough, and that's just, that's just here on Capitol Hill. Yeah. I mean, at the states, and it's, it's not always doom and bloom. At the states, uh, in Pennsylvania, you know, Sunday hunting has always been a huge issue for the National mm-hmm. Shooting Sports Foundation. We're part of the Sunday hunting coalition. Um, <clears throat> we worked hard. We got, the, we got the laws changed here in Virginia, where I live. We got them changed in Maryland and North Carolina, and it's incremental. It's not always a huge blanket mm-hmm. change. Sometimes it's going to be county by county. Sometimes mm-hmm. it'll be only on a private land, but we're working to make sure we open opportunities every chance we got to remove those roadblocks to be, you know, let people get out and hunt mm-hmm. like they want to. Um, Pennsylvania's been a huge issue, been really tough. Old blue laws in Pennsylvania just love to hang on. Yeah. So you can tailgate all you want on Sundays, but you can't go hunt on Sundays. <laughs> So we've been working with uh, with the state senators and and the state representatives there, and the Senate, uh, state Senate, passed a bill to, to authorize uh, Sunday hunting in, in Pennsylvania. The, uh, the Fish and Game Commission is behind it. Uh, it hit a few roadblocks in in the Pennsylvania legislature. Um, there was some opposition from the Farm Bureau, uh, and just this week it looks like they may have gotten a compromise on that. They said that they're going to. Uh, 
with a couple of tweaks of an amendment, possibly putting in some protections for for some landowners. You have to have written permission to hunt on Sundays. Uh, you have to have increased penalties for trespassing. So that way these farmers are protected. Uh, we possibly could see, cross our fingers, maybe next year that three Sundays, three Sundays <laughs> of the entire hunting season in Maine, or uh, to the hunting season in Pennsylvania, could possibly be open to, uh, to, to hunting in the Keystone State. It's a huge win. And while it seems like three doesn't seem like a whole lot, the fact that we're able to get over that hurdle to provide that opportunity is huge. And we, we see this as you, you have working moms and dads who are working five, maybe six days a week and they have one day off. And they want to be able to share their pastime, their passion, and their love for the outdoors with their kids. Mm -hmm. But you've taken away half their hunting seasons if all they have to do is to be able to hunt on the weekends. Again, you want to go ride the trails on your horses you want to ride your bike in the trails, you want to go hiking, you have every other day of the week to do that as well. But you've taken half of that weekend away, half of that hunting season away for some of these working families. And that's a huge issue. So we're working really hard to try and remove those barriers. And there still are other states who still don't have Sunday. I recently hunted in Maine. No Sunday hunting in Maine. Yes. Gave me a great opportunity to enjoy some lobster, but I really wanted to be in the woods. <laughs> so, I mean, we're working to try and overturn these barriers as, as much good. as we can. Georgia. Governor Kemp just signed a proclamation mm -hmm. about National Hunting uh, National Hunting and Fishing Day, September twenty eighth, which we're going to celebrate across the country. But it takes a uh, you know it takes a special kind of governor to say, yeah, listen, this is so important to our heritage here in this state that we're going to celebrate it. We want people to get out there, get out into the woods, get out into the marshes, get out on the boats, and celebrate what it means to be an outdoorsman. We're the ones who are the true conservationists. Yeah. We're the ones who are perpetuating our wildlife for future generations. So it, it really is a huge uh, huge win for all sportsmen and women to be able to have governors like Governor Kemp yeah. who, who are continuing to support our, our pastimes. Yeah, he's really nice. I got to meet him a month or so ago. And uh, also, I think Governor Bill Lee of Tennessee is also a big hunter, too. Yep. So it's nice to see a few of them popping up. Yeah, um, we, we have we have several uh, several governors who are who are definitely uh, behind the firearms industry. I mean, uh, I think if you go to Shasha every year, you're going to see Governor Hutchinson out there from Arkansas. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, you will see Wyoming's governor there every year. And, and these governors, if you notice, these are governors who are who are actively courting the firearms industry to their states. Yep. Uh, you know, there's no there's no particular odd end reason as to why all of a sudden now you've got uh, you've got uh, companies moving into Wyoming. I from mean, California. From California. Weatherby, for instance. Where they yeah. had 50 years of history and all of a sudden mm -hmm. decided, you know, our future is in Wyoming. It's not mm -hmm. here in California anymore. So uh, they're, they're working really hard. I mean, Governor Hudson's out there working really hard. I mean, bringing companies in and I mean that's I think that's evidenced by you know you, you've seen the growth of what Six Hour's been doing down there and, and you see more companies looking at at these states where they're going to respect the rights of, of people to be able to exercise their second amendment rights and they're going to respect the companies and what they bring to those, to those state economies. The huge economic impact huge. billions of dollars yeah. <laughs> yeah. to those states so yeah it, it, it's good they understand commerce yeah. and, it, and it's part of the culture in many of these states southern or out yeah. west um, and they want to preserve that way of life. And they understand that if you pigeonhole people, you're not going to have a productive state and people are going to feel kind of locked, locked yeah. in and, yeah. and not doing things there. I wanted to ask you something a little more positive. Uh, I loved seeing photos of you with some other uh, outdoor industry type uh, communications experts 
helping wildlife officers, fish and wildlife biologists in Maryland tagging black bear cubs, which was so cute. I loved seeing that. I know you want to get me roped into that. I would love, hopefully, to to go try that out and and see what that experience is like. But can you speak to that type of program and that opportunity and what people fail to understand that uh, hunters, like you were mentioning, do play a huge part in those monies that go back to conservation efforts and what that type of experience um, can do for people who are interested to see that uh, intertwining and that relationship between those dollars from hunters and shooters that goes back to actually helping ensure the health and sustenance of critical species like black bears. Yeah, so it was a really neat opportunity. It was actually born of the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Mm -hmm. and they call it partner with a payer. So the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service knows that a chunk of their money is coming from the Pittman-Robertson excise dollars. And that comes from the firearms manufacturers and ammunition manufacturers. So they want to be able to show those people, this is what you're paying for. So they started this program. I think it started really up in New England with the first few of them. And they did uh, bear den studies, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But they also did moose collaring studies. Mm. They went out and, and showed what a controlled burn looks like when you're when you're burning down old growth that, that you kind of need to make room for new growth to come in to have healthy healthy forest land. Um, but for the first year, this year, I was able to take part in the partner with a payer. We expanded it down here to the mid-Atlantic region. Mm-hmm. We worked with the, with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife and the Maryland Department of, uh, Department of Conservation. DNR, yeah. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. and so we went out with them uh, to do a bear den study. They, they had a collared sow. They knew where she was denning up. Uh, they knew that she was pregnant. Uh, they knew that she delivered. So... Um, Bear, black bear don't truly hibernate. They kind of right. go into they kind of go into a, a good slumber, but they still can be roused. <laughs> so they went out there. They they darted her to make sure that she was uh, she was going to be compliant with what we wanted to do with her cubs. And a really neat thing is, is where they brought us all up there, uh, and they pulled four little cubs uh-huh. between four and six pounds, um, and they handed them to us. They said, "All right, we're gonna we're gonna start taking some." measurements weights and blood samples from mom you hold the babies mm-hmm. uh so they handed us all these four cubs who were just you know crying and growling and and uh and just doing what black bears do climbing yeah they just wanted to climb to the top of you um so really need to be able to hold them and and to kind of see what's going on but the, the neatest part about it is they're explaining to us that everything that they were doing out there was paid with pittman robertson dollars mm-hmm. so the collars that they were putting on the bears were paid with Pittman Robertson dollars. The the serum to tranquilize the sow was Pittman Robertson dollars. The telemetry equipment that they were using to track her is Pittman Robertson dollars. The time that they were putting in there to keep the studies going, Pittman Robertson dollars. All of this to make sure we have healthy wildlife. The really cool thing about it is, as they were explaining to us, is just 20, 30 years ago, it was rare to see a bear in Maryland. Wow. They just weren't there anymore. They had kind of been extirpated out of the area. And the neat thing is, is they've kind of just naturally moved back into the area as they've taken better care of the ecosystems and understanding what bears need and understanding how they're going to live and they're going to move. Uh, now they're saying you, it's not uncommon to have bear sightings out on the eastern shore. So that far they, out? they've come up that far. Wow. So they said they've kind of moved back in from Pennsylvania. They've kind of moved in from West Virginia, kind of moved up from Virginia, uh-huh. and they've, they've repopulated. They have a healthy hunting season up there every year. Mm-hmm. They know that they need to take bear out. Uh, they, they they know that that's good for the for the ecology. That's good for the mm-hmm. bear population. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they are able to use these Pittman Robertson dolls to track the health of these bears. They said they explained to me that they had one bear that they had tracked over twenty years, wow. which is a really good life for for yeah. a black bear. 
she had had, I think, 11 litters. Wow. Uh, if I remember correctly. So she had a very healthy, very productive life. Uh, and she was doing just fine. And they were moving out there. So the, the these four little cubs, they uh, they ear-tagged each of them. They got a weight on them, again, between four and six pounds. Uh, and at the end of it, they put uh, Mama Sal back into her <laughs> den. Uh, and they, they tucked each of the cubs back in there, closed the den back up a little bit. She was living up underneath a, a tree stump and some brush pile. She was well mm. in there, had a really nice den. It was on a southern-facing slope. Mm. So she had good sun to keep everyone warm. Uh, and they said if we had tried to do this two weeks later, there's no way we could have done it. Wow. All, those, all those cubs' teeth would have been in, and we wouldn't have been able to hold them. So, <laughs> uh, a really neat you know, way to, to demonstrate the importance of the funds and what right. it's paying for, to be able to get people out there to understand we appreciate what we're doing from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, but be able to, for us as the industry to see what the money is paying for, it gives us a whole new appreciation. Many of us are sportsmen and women. We love to be out there in the woods. But to kind of see it all full circle really yeah. is a neat opportunity. So we were deeply appreciative of U.S. Fish and Wildlife. We want to do more of it. I know that they recently did another one down in Alabama. Mm. They were able to uh, open up um, a bunch of land to public hunting and down there using the using that money. So they actually invited some folks from the farms industry to go down on a hog hunt. That's cool. So a couple of our folks from NSSF, to include our president, Joe Bartosi, and uh, Jim Kirkerudo and Trevor Santos, they all went down there and they were able to get out there and uh, they harvested a hog, that which is probably really good for the environment down there yeah. in, in Alabama. It's way too many hogs in the area, so mm -hmm. um, they were able to get out there, enjoy some public land hunting, and be able to harvest a hog. So it's, uh, but this is an opportunity now because of those those Pitt and Robertson dollars. It's open to everybody that's paid through our excise taxes. So mm -hmm. we're very proud to do that. We've been doing that since 1937. And it's uh, twelve point five billion dollars, I think, to date mm -hmm. is what we've put in. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a lot because they think, well, the sportsmen just want to take the shot and kill the big animals, kill the bears. But it's it's not. It's a mutual respect for the population and the species. And then simultaneously believing in some sort of sound management practices to ensure that not only uh, human bear conflicts or let's say human big game animal conflicts aren't uh, so common, but also the health of the species. Because aggressive bears, if you just study behavior, if they're not controlled, they're going to attack other bears. Kind yeah. of like what um, the uh, cross or interactions between different species out west with the grizzlies versus black bears, but yeah, it's, it's not just to reduce human conflict; it's also just to help mitigate tensions even between bears as well. Sure, I mean the interesting thing we've seen some recent articles about they've been published from the UN climate studies, <laughs> and they talked about how there's the population of birds in North America has just precipitously dropped, yep. but there were two groups of birds they said were doing really really well, and it was ducks and geese. Yep. And they directly attribute that to conservation by hunters. Mm -hmm. So before all these North American wildlife conservation model practices began in the 1930s, there were few ducks. Yep. It was hard to find mm -hmm. a duck. They'd been overhunted. They weren't regulated. Because of the, of the practice that we put in as hunters, because of the money that we're putting in through the mm -hmm. Pitt and Robertson dollars to conserve wildlife land, wildlife and the lands, the marshes, the, the pothole prairie, the you know the potholes out in the prairies for them to be able to grow. Um, we now have more ducks in North America than we've probably ever had since we've been here as a nation. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a huge success to, as to what we're doing. Right. And it shows the investment of the hunter mm -hmm. as the true conservationist to be able to keep these keep these generations alive for our kids and our grandkids mm -hmm. to be able to enjoy this as mm -hmm. well. And and for non-hunters. Yeah. I mean we're we're preserving wildlife for the bird watchers too. Yeah. For those people who 
really kind of look down their nose sometimes at hunters. We want you to be able to enjoy wildlife mm-hmm. too. So happy to pay, pay that tax. Yeah. What portion of, let's say, those PR funds, I don't know if you have an estimate. Um, you've told me some figure before, but if uh, if uh, I, I've argued before that uh, if you have gun control policies, it would definitely eat away at the monies coming in from recreational shooters. And also if we have diminishing hunting numbers, that pot would also be gone. So would a big share of those monies go away if we don't keep replenishing hunters and if we have certain laws in place that restrict the yeah. legal purchase of yeah, stuff? We, we're very concerned about that. I mean, obviously we know that that uh, we've got a lot of hunters that are aging out mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and not so many people are taking up hunting. Um, so one of the concerns we have is, is California recently banned the use of uh, lead ammunition uh, across the entire state. Um, and it's up to the individual hunter whether or not they want to choose to use uh, you know, non-traditional ammunition or use traditional ammunition. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, the cost of non-traditional ammunition, though, is significantly higher than traditional lead core ammunition. Um, so we see this move by California not necessarily as, as an idea to uh, be environmentally friendly or to be uh, a conservation model to follow. Uh, we really think that this is an effort on their part and the California state legislature to push hunters out of the market, mm-hmm. to price them out. So this is the first year it's in fact. We are very interested to see what next year's uh, tallies are on hunting and hunting licenses, to see how much they've gone up or gone down. Uh, that's going to be a huge indicator as to whether or not these campaigns are, are doing what we think they're trying to do or if it's, you know, having some kind of effect mm-hmm. we at the national shooting sports foundation you know we represent manufacturers who make both types of ammunition mm-hmm. um, if you want to choose to use non-traditional ammunition we believe that's a choice that you should make we're also here to tell you that 2008 cdc study uh, found that people who consume venison harvested by traditional lead ammunition actually had lower instances of lead in their blood than the ambient population around them so they're actually healthier. So, yeah, you often uh, hear the opposite. Yeah, you, you, people a lot of times will talk about that, and they'll talk about the issues of lead being left in, in, to, in the environment. Lead's a naturally occurring element. It's mm-hmm. out there. Um, but again, when I'm harvesting an animal, if I shoot an animal, and that area of that animal is bloodshot around that wound, you, you're cutting out all that meat anyway. It's, it's, it's all bloodshot. It's not going to be good to consume. So all that area that there may be any kind of shard of lead is going to be there. I'm also one of those hunters, so I'm very interested to find out what that bullet did when I'm harvesting an animal. So if I'm, if I'm butchering up the deer that I've harvested, I'm trying to find that bullet. And if it's, if it's still inside the, the carcass of that deer, I want to see what the performance of that bullet did. I want to know. I'm very particular about what I want to mm-hmm. shoot. I know how bullets perform in the different firearms that I use, and I want to make sure that they're continuing to perform that way, or do I need to look at something that's going to have a better performance? So, uh, But we think that people should be able to make their sound decisions on their own personal level. We don't think that, that some of the policies that the states are trying to explore are necessarily environmentally friendly. We think that they're more hunter anger yeah. toward them. They're trying to drive... Uh, gun ownership down. California is notorious for that. I know. A little bit, yeah. They never marketed it because I didn't discover hunting until I left. Yeah. So I I wouldn't be surprised if your theory is correct because, and although it's ironic because the state wildlife agency there wants to promote hunting now, all the while they have these impositions in place. In California (laughs) just this year, uh, banned (laughs) any kind of trapping. Yep. So trapping is out in California. Uh, 
it's it's becoming more and more difficult to be a sportsman in California. Yep. So. Yeah, and they are even eating away at recreational fishing. I remember they put a law into place in the 2000s, which made it increasingly difficult even to go recreational fishing from Santa Barbara to San Diego. So they really don't like sportsmen there, in my estimation. (laughs) I want to ask you, how can people connect with you and also NSSF? What is the best way? Social media, website, what links would you recommend Yeah, sure. I mean, so there are website courses, nssf.org. They can find everything that we're going on. Again, we are a trade association, so... It's not necessarily as open as some people might think it is. Right. So it's a membership organization. Mm-hmm. So uh, retailers, ranges, manufacturers, uh, certainly uh, welcome to join. We, we would welcome your membership. Um, but we do have publicly available information. I am. Uh, we are always posting up blogs every week. We're publishing up research information every week. Uh, there is some stuff that's, that's membership-only based, uh, but we have that stuff available. A lot of information is available right there on, on the public-facing side of our website. Uh, we have our, uh, have our Twitter account. We have mm-hmm. a Facebook account. We have an Instagram account. Uh, what other social media? You guys have Let's Go Shooting, we Let's have Go Let, Hunting. Yeah, so Let's Go Shooting, Let's Go Hunting, uh, .org are probably our two of our, our newest uh, you know platforms. We're really proud of those. So some of the things we found, of course, is people, we're trying to remove these barriers to, mm-hmm. to hunting and, mm-hmm. and shooting. And people want to know where they can go shoot. How do I... Well, how do I get to a range one? Where is it? Two, what do I need to know before I get there? Mm-hmm. Do I have to take some kind of safety course? What, what equipment mm-hmm. do I need? Mm-hmm. Do I have to go with a friend? So if you go on to letsgoshooting.org, you're able to plug in where you live, and it'll pop up where all the ranges are around you. What we find is that most people, if they can't get to somewhere within a half hour maybe of driving, they're not going to go shoot. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to make sure that they can find a range that's nearby them, whether it be a public range or a private range, mm-hmm. somewhere they can go, and then get connected to that range if it's a private range to find out what resources are available? Can they rent a gun? Can they go in there and, and get a membership to that private range? Is it open to the public to be able to, to shoot uh, with a with a fee? Is it publicly accessible? So uh, we want to make sure that that's open and, and, and accessible to uh, those who want to be able to get out there. Now let's go shoot. Let's go hunting. Dot org uh, has all that information, but for hunting. Mm-hmm. So where are the public hunting lands? How do I get a hunting license? What what's what do I, what am I required to get when I do a uh, a hunter safety course for this state. Well, what's what's the requirements are going to be? What do I do with the animal when I kill it? Mm-hmm. So when I harvest that animal, how do I cook? Every they'll find recipes on there on how to cook up, how to make dove poppers. Mm-hmm. You know how to be able to, you know, put up a backstrap on a grill. You know and be able to cook that up. So we want people to be able to enjoy every aspect of, of their hunting opportunity, and that's available on on where to go hunting dot org. That's very helpful. I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule from fighting all the crazy legislation (laughs) to come sit with me because I wanted to do this for a while. And I think it's so important that people just kind of learn more about the industry from people who work in it directly. I can only tout so much about it. I, I mean, I support it and all that, but I want people to actually hear directly from folks like you who are in the trenches fighting for for stuff and communicating uh, our industry and shared values to the greater public. It's important. So yeah, thank I, you. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much, Gabby. Yeah, it's, it's, always, it's always a pleasure to visit with you and, and to be able to speak to your listeners through you. It's, it's a, it really is a treat. Absolutely. Thank you again, Mark. All right. Make sure to leave a review at Apple Podcasts or whatever provider you listen to. Every review goes a long way. Make sure you subscribe as well, because if you subscribe, you're able to hear every episode of District of Conservation that comes out and find it straight on your app. Make sure you follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat 
or to miss announcements on future guests or topics that we discuss. Send us your feedback. Let us know what you think of the podcast and we'll do our best to accommodate some requests and some guesting queries. We're going to have many interesting people join us on the podcast in the coming weeks. I can assure you that. So you do not want to miss out. It's going to be very interesting and hopefully a lot of fun too. I think you're going to learn a lot from some of the guests I have coming up very soon. Some repeat guests and some new guests. So it's a lot of fun here on District of Conservation this fall. Thank you again for listening and I hope you have a great week.